Are you a fire instructor or training officer eager to elevate your career? Inside the Modern Fire Instructor Pro Membership, you can leap beyond department limitations. Inside MFI Pro, you'll immerse yourself with monthly expert-led training, live bi-weekly Zoom Q&As, and an exclusive community of like-minded peers. You'll also have 24-7 access to our extensive and purpose-built resource library to help you stay ahead of your peers. Ready to ignite your full potential? To learn more, click the link in the show notes or head to trymfi.com. That's trymfi.com to begin your journey right now with a seven-day free trial. And when you sign up, make sure to use coupon code PODCAST to receive 40% off your monthly membership forever when you decide to stay. Secure your future, invest in yourself, and invest in MFI Pro at trymfi.com. Now back to the show. Welcome to the Modern Fire Instructor Podcast, where we tap into the wisdom of experienced professionals on topics like fire training, leadership, and learning. I'm your host, Rob Candle. Join me as we uncover actionable insights that you can use to grow your skills as an instructor, make you more effective, and help you leave a lasting impact on those you serve. Today, my guest is retired Deputy Chief Ted Nee. Ted retired from the Albuquerque Fire Department, where his roles included Assistant Chief of Training. He helped develop the department's simulation lab and officer certification program, and is an experienced instructor teaching for ISFSI, Blue Card, and FDIC. Ted has authored numerous articles and co-authored the Fire Engineering Fire Dynamics video. Inside today's episode, using sims to improve performance, recognition prime decision-making, both deliberate and perfect practice, getting out of your comfort zone, and advice for the newly promoted officer. Let's get curious and dive in. I'd like to start with simulations, talking about simulations, and then move on to some specific principles related to learning. Can you tell me about your philosophy regarding the use of simulations as a proxy for actual fire ground experience? The whole simulation thing kind of came out of our, at the time when I was working at Albuquerque Fire, I was one of the people that kind of came up through the ranks with me was uh, Bobby Halton. And that's a, I don't know if everyone knows who Bobby was, but um, he just actually passed away uh, in December. But he was the, for the last 18 years, been the editor in chief of Fire Engineering Magazine and uh, the educational director for FDIC. But um, at the time, Bobby and I were both um, battalion chiefs in Albuquerque and we were kind of putting together the beginnings of. We were, we were trying to teach people how to make better decisions, I guess, was kind of the gist of it. And um, it kind of all started out with people were complaining that the company officers were giving terrible size-up reports. And uh, so we started looking at it and it was like, well, what are we teaching them? And, of course, there was, there was no uh, procedure and there was no training on it and so you you know if you don't train anyone well you get whatever you get and so um bobby and i kind of decided we were going to start doing some um we'd we'd start from the ground up and kind of that was kind of our first step was teaching was we were gonna teach people how to um give better sides ups and so you know one of the places that 
we looked to was the Phoenix Fire Department. One of the – Bobby was good friends with uh, Chief Allen Brunicini, and so we kind of got a copy of their volume two and started looking at it. And they had pretty um, detailed uh, communications SOPs. And so we kind of started there. And this is before there was any simulation software out there. And so I had a very early uh, digital camera, which was an Apple One camera. I don't know if anyone remembers what that was, but it looked kind of like a play school camera. Um, very took very low resolution digital images. We had a very early uh, copy of Photoshop. And so we were able to take photos from buildings in our own jurisdiction. And so we just took up, we shot a ton of pictures, brought them into Photoshop and uh, kind of created some, what I would by today's standards would look like pretty hokey uh, fire and in, in, uh, smoke conditions. And then, so we kind of started the class, taught out, we taught people, you know, we went through the procedures for giving a size up. We just broke it down into the smallest parts, like, you know, so we, and then we created some job aids, some little cards. I still, we still have them on the job today where it's just the initial radio report. And uh, then we just went through these and we just did a bunch of size ups and we just kept, you know, we had a ton of them that, that we created in, uh, it was hugely successful. It kind of created a standard and then people, you know, were trying to outdo each other. Who could do, who could give the best size up? It became kind of a competition. So uh, we kind of learned from that, that, Hey, this simulation stuff is actually, uh, is actually pretty effective. And now that was pretty, I mean, we didn't even, we, we basically had color color overheads. Cause so that was kind of this was like in the kind of mid nineties. Um and so um it was pretty successful and Bobby and I had been wanting to go to FDIC and uh you know we were never able to get the department at the time. There wasn't did there wasn't a huge budget for uh training or to send people to off site training. Um, and so we just said, well, let's just submit it as a class and they, we can go. And so that, that we did that in, uh, 1999 and, uh, people were just stunned. I mean, they were, when they saw what we were doing, it was like, you know, and it sounds kind of hokey today. I mean, by then we had gotten it all onto, onto, uh, PowerPoint slides. So we didn't have to, we didn't have to have an overhead projector or anything. It was a little more modern than that, but, um, you know, people were like, oh, that's, you know, it was kind of, in 1999, that was state of the art. And so, uh, and then Bobby and I had just, ever since then, we'd been to FDIC every single year. Let me, let me um, follow up with you on something you said there. You sure. said that you guys, after you implemented this, it was hugely successful. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, what were you guys seeing as a result of this program that you guys built and implemented? What, what, how did you define success? What was, what was it that was different? So 
the real complaint from the battalions was that, you know, well, they, we didn't have a – so people basically parroted stuff that they heard while they were coming up, you know. And so, they were, you know, people, they get to a fire and call it, oh, we've got a boomer, whatever that means, you know. <laughs> and so, it, I mean, it was just the size-ups were – there really wasn't any size-up in a systematic way. And so once we kind of gave them the tools, you know, and we gave them stuff that they could, you know, we gave them laminated cards and stuff they could put right on the dashboard so they could look at it. And um, and then as we got more sophisticated with the um, simulation programs, we just um, kept incorporating that into it. So that that was always a part of the simulations was given your, you know, whoever got on scene first would give their initial size up. Even when we got into um, some of the blue card type simulations where we were doing um, uh, multiple units um, kind of timed and synchronized up uh, simulations. And so people started doing the standard size up that we gave them. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and so it, it almost became a competition. Like who could, who could give the, the clearest, most concise sign, uh, you know, size up report. And so, yeah, it was, I mean, we were really surprised by it, um, how effective it was. And it was just a matter, and it, it just came down to a matter of practice. You know, so then we started kind of incorporating that into all the stuff that we did. So if we were going to do, you know, any type of tactics training, well, when they got on scene, they'd have to do, give their initial size up. And we'd, um, but part of it was, the, I think the way we, we actually did the training too, in that, you know, it wasn't, um, they would give a size up. We would, they would get immediate feedback about how well they did. And then we'd get them to do it again. And then once people got it down, we just, we kept going, you know, and, and, you know, we did kind of pile a lot of it on in the beginning, but um, we tried to, to have an on, you know, keep it as an ongoing training as we um, continued on. We just tried to incorporate that into all the other things that we did. So it became kind of a standard. It sounds like, uh, you've said standard a couple of times. It's, it, it, you didn't have anything that was a clear expectation about what success looked like. And once you guys defined that, then you had some, a standard to train to, and then it was yeah, a matter of repetition. Exactly. I mean, so one of the huge projects that, um, Chief Halton and I worked on was there were really no fire ground SOPs at Albuquerque. And so, you know, Chief Brunacini was kind enough to give us the, you know, Phoenix volume two. And then we took that and um, just kind of turned it, you know, obviously we don't have the same response um, system that they had. And so, you know, we had to put it in the context. So we took that information, put it in the context of Albuquerque fire and how we did things. And, you know, we didn't have, um, you know, we didn't have chiefs, aides who would be the support officer. And so we had to, you know, we had to reconfigure 
um, some of the things that they were doing. But um, so then we actually had something to train from. And, and that's been kind of an interesting thing with the simulations. When we talk about simulations is that, um, you know, the, the simulations are, you know, the, the application part of the training. And so you've got to have this, the upfront stuff. You have to have a system that you're training to. It can't just be, you know, it's the simulations aren't the training, aren't the training part of it. It's the application part of the training. So, you know, so that gave us really a, a good framework to, to work from. So we would talk about, okay, what's, what's our general approach to house fires? What lines go where, you know, just, just kind of general stuff. And then you'd say, okay, let's go down in the sim lab and let's run and let's, you know, do, let's run some of these. And so, but you can't just say, okay, we're going to go on the sim lab and run some sims because right. you just get, you know, I can tell you from my own experience, that's a bad way to do business. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing magical about the simulation, right? I mean, no. that's a, it's a great tool potentially, but without the proper standards or, or knowing what success looks like or how you do business with what the Albuquerque way was, right? How do we, how, how do we measure what success looks like in the sim lab if we don't have clear expectations? And that's exactly right. I mean, you have to, you, there has to be a system that you're working to, um, especially when people are first, you know, so we were kind of in a, in a weird place because we, you know, the, the department's SOPs were mostly, it was mostly kind of like NIMS ICS stuff. So it wasn't the actual incident management part of, of, um, of the fire ground that was, that was covered in the, in the, um, department standards. And so once we kind of converted the, the Phoenix, uh, volume two, the fire ground, uh, incident management, which is all based on chief Brunacini's, um, fire command. Um, so once we did that, we had to kind of go back and train everyone. So by then we had a, we had some good means to do that with the simulations. So that was, I mean, it was, it was just kind of a lucky thing that, you know, we did that at one point and then had the, the technology kind of caught up to where we could actually create some, some really decent fire ground simulations. You and Bobby were battalion chiefs at this time. Yes. Um, so what kind and, of, what, what was your organizational structure like at the time? Did you guys have uh, free reign to do this? Did you have to, did you have to convince anybody above you in the organization about the merits of this new program? How did, how did that all work? Um, I think we were kind of lucky. I mean, I, at the time that we came up through the ranks in Albuquerque, there was a tremendous amount of growth. I mean, the department went from, I'm trying to think. It was it was around 350 to by the time we left, it was 700 firefighters, and so there was a huge opportunity to promote up through the ranks. And then the there was so much that we needed to do that it was fairly easy to get a buy-in from the chief. Um, mm. At the time we were doing this stuff, our, we had a very uh, progressive chief. Um, 
Morris Ewing and you know, he want he kind of at the time I was a battalion chief, but I was assigned to the training division and uh and Bobby would just come up, you know, when he was on shift or he'd come up on his days off and we'd work on these projects. But um so you know, we got pretty good buy and we didn't have we there wasn't a huge fight to get to get stuff done. I mean, people saw that the things we were doing were making a difference out on the street. And I think that's the critical kind of thing. When people see that it's successful, it's not hard to get by. Um, you know, if you're doing stuff that people can't apply out on in the real world, then, you know, why are you doing it? I guess is the, is the, is the question. And so, you know, we were doing stuff that people could take from the training and apply it on the next shift. So, um, so that became, I think that kind of sells itself. And then when the people, the, the battalion chiefs, so tip, so basically we were running four battalions at the time. So we had four, you know, four battalion chiefs on shift and, you know, when they would see the difference in how the fire ground was running, you know, it's not, it's not hard to, to get buy-in. You've done a lot of teaching across the country over the years. And, um, what is your impression of how things are today compared to when you started out as far as how well are departments, um, making a clear expectation. Like you said, you guys had success when you clarified what your expectations were. Is that still a challenge across the country and, uh, or, or by and large have things improved since then? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think it just, it, it, the answer is it depends Mm. on where you go. I mean, there's just in this, there's so many departments in this, in this country that, um, but you know, the places that I've been to, there's just, you know, pockets of excellence where, you know, you can see that, you know, they're really doing good things. And then there's other places where it's just, you know, it's no better than when I started, you know. And But at least, you know, if you're going out and doing training there, they're trying to do something, which is always, which is, which is a plus. Um, you know, the... It's, you know, I do a lot of training on simulation de- design and development and then how to kind of like, I wouldn't say best practices, but ways to use simulation and training that have proven to be effective. And, um, and so people are, you know, are, there's some really good programs out, out in the country. Speaking of programs and what is, what is, um, how do you, how do you see blue card? and its impact across the country, because it's essentially doing a lot of what you and Bobby had to do from the ground up as far as establishing uh, expectations for how we're going to run and organize a fire scene. Is that, would you say that's correct? Um, Yeah. I mean, it's a system. So Mm -hmm. for departments that don't, you know, have a a well-defined command system and there's, I mean, there's plenty of them out there. Or for small departments, like one of the departments that 
that I work with is a small department in Colorado, and they're totally dependent on mutual aid. And so if you can get everybody in a system like that to be on the same page, you know, that, that you know, yields, you know, great benefits on the fire ground as far as, you know, being effective, doing your job correctly, and then keeping your, your people safe. And um, I mean, I could actually my introduction to the blue card was kind of out of necessity at the time after I'd left um, Albuquerque fire and went over to the national laboratory. um, One of the deputy chiefs that I worked with got hired on um, Eugene McPeak um, got hired on at Sandia to kind of revamp the emergency response organization. And so um, I was like the first person he hired to to help him out with that project, and so so basically we hired a bunch of um, retired uh, battalion chiefs from Albuquerque Fire and from uh, Bernalillo County Fire um, to be kind of the incident commanders. And then we hired a bunch. Most of the day to day staff were people that would just come in on their days off from their active firefighters with Albuquerque or with Bernalillo County. And, uh, but when we got on board there, the existing emergency response organization had been developed from the law enforcement side. So all the people had been on what they called the pro force, which was the security police on the laboratory. So they all had, um, law enforcement backgrounds. And so here we took a bunch of firefighters and then a bunch of people from the law enforcement side and had to kind of meld them into a response organization. And, um, so this was in, uh, 2007 and, uh, chief McPeak decided that we would bring in, um, so blue card was just getting started. There was no online system. Um, and we brought, uh, chief Brunacini and, um, uh, Nick and John Brunacini came in and we actually did the blue card curriculum in the classroom. And so we ran half the people through, uh, the blue card, uh, program. And then they came back out a couple of weeks later and uh, we ran the other half through. And then John and I built a bunch of simulations that were specific to the lab because we were doing, you know, most of our work was hazmat and uh, uh, technical rescue stuff or or EMS. And so we built a bunch of sims that were specific uh, to the laboratory while everyone was in class. And then we ran, we ran them through the certification lab, everyone from both, from both groups. So, uh, you know, it was, and the interesting thing was, you know, what, when I look back on that was, you know, who would you think did, got the material, picked it up quicker and did better at it? Between the two groups, between, between experienced battalion chiefs and people that came over from the law enforcement side. 
Uh, I'd expect the 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 uh, experienced battalion chiefs, and they were the worst. So were they? Uh, so the because they had to unlearn stuff that they had been doing, mm. and the people on the law enforcement side had no no bad habits. They were basically a blank slate. Mm. So whatever we taught them, it was they didn't have to unlearn anything because they really. You know, they had no incident command system. And so they were, they, you know, it was funny. They picked it up and they didn't have to, we didn't have to work with them to unlearn some of the stuff, bad habits that they had picked up in the in the fire department. So, so you guys had great success at Albuquerque building this program. And you, you've said that they could use it the next day or the next shift. So um, my original question was, using simulations as a proxy for experience. Because we often hear that nobody's getting enough fires to get good at fires or running fires uh, just based on that experience alone. So would you say that you, you, could, you could watch an incident commander on the fire ground and see that they had clearly benefited from their training in the sim lab? Um, oh, uh, you know, and so I don't have any empirical data that you know we collected like how were they before versus afterwards but just from my own you know experience yeah we i mean we saw a huge um improvement in how the fire ground um got run and and so you know it kind of goes back to the you know the basic law of psychology if we go all the way back to aristotle the law of frequency so it's you know, the more frequently you experience, um, you know, you have an experience or an association, the better you'll, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll have a memory for it. And so, you know, the amount of practice is really the single best determinant of good performance. So I think, I'm sorry, if I cut you off. Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, I think... Uh, that what you said about Aristotle reminded me of a quote that my uh, previous chief um, put on a training document that he gave me, but it was, we are what we repeatedly do. Well, and so, you know, Aristotle has lots of good quotes. And one of my favorites is, you know, the things that we learn to do, we learn by doing. And so, you know, that's where, you know, no one's going to be first to at every possible thing that, that you could run into, you know, it's just, you know, no one knows what the next, you know, the next 911 call is going to be. And so, so one of the, 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 the things that um, Bobby and I really worked hard on was like, how do you teach people how to make better decisions? And the answer to that is really, well, you can't. So how do you, so if you, so we, so you have to look at, because you have to, you know, to just say, okay, this is the right decision. That's the wrong decision kind of doesn't work. And so you have to look at, okay, what goes into, you know, expert decision-making. And so one of the people that we were lucky enough to, to, to go to a class with was um, Gary Klein, the author of a lot of really fine books on decision-making and probably the Bible of decision making has uh it's, I think it's been twenty five years now something um 
the book called Tales um, or Sources of Power. But in you know, I'm kind. Of, I'm not a real extroverted person, but after we went to that class, Bobby Cross went right up and started talking to Klein and kept started calling him on the phone. And we started really. We went out to St. Louis, and um, he was teaching somewhere, and we just flew out there and sat down with him and just, you know, he was kind enough to share some time with us, and we kind of picked his brain about, you know, how. how you know, what are the things we could do to, to, you know, to kind of get to where we wanted to get to. And so, you know, the, the whole cognitive part of it is, you know, the, the things that you want that. So it's all the things that go into decision-making that you can kind of teach. And so his model of recognition prime decision-making or this RPD model, as they call it, um, you know, we really kind of took that to heart and said, okay, well, that's how experienced decision-makers make decisions. And that's been, I mean, since the his original model came out, it's been pretty much shown to be true across a wide variety of uh professions and so the things that we were trying to do is get people to and and you see a lot of this in what chief brunacini was doing with with fire command is when he talks about critical fire ground factors well those are just you know trying to develop perceptual skills so you see the things that are important the building configuration the conditions on arrival, the smoke and fire conditions, what do those things look like? You know, what is your understanding of the resources you're bringing to the event? And so the whole idea behind what we were trying to do is just expand people's experience base. So the more experience they have, they begin to develop these skills, like being able to recognize patterns. So that became a big part of of what we tried to do with the simulations. <clears throat> so we would create, you know, simulations. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. We did a, so we would look at critical events that occurred in the fire service. And then we would look for similar buildings in, in Albuquerque that we could use to kind of recreate those same events. And then we would build the simulation out so that people would get to recognize um, like patterns. Like one of the early ones we did was based on a fire that happened in Lake Worth, Texas, the Precious Faith Church fire. And so um, we just created a very similar uh, simulation. And that particular fire, without getting into the, you know, the nitty gritty details, but it was a fire in a, in a church that, um, had basically a big lightweight truss span. The The fire started in the exterior of the place in the rear on the Charlie side of the building. And when they got on scene, there was smoke coming from the attic turbines in the church itself. Um, on the Charlie side, the gable end had started to burn through. But when the crews went in, as typically we do, they went in through the alpha side and there was a very light smoke condition, no heat inside. And 
so that's a pattern. And so that's, and, you know, so that's one of the things that we started talking about was, okay, so we built a simulation very similar to that and said, okay, there's a lot of smoke here. You can see from the, from the far end that, you know, there's some fire on the Charlie side. There's smoke pushing out of these attic turbines, the reports from the interior. And then you have to think about the church too. Like how's the church laid out? Well, how's a big wide open space? Well, how do you get that? You've got to have a, you know, you've got to have some kind of trust system. And, and so, you know, we started from that pattern. What can you say about what's going on here? And so then, you know, it kind of gets into that situational awareness um, aspect of it, too. So can you recognize this pattern? And then based on this recognition, what's likely to happen then? And so can you project, you know, into the near future what's likely to occur at this event? And, you know, when you think, well, first of all, you have to figure out what's the pattern, what's going on here? Well, it's there's no heat, there's light smoke inside. And so they've already, you know, they've, they've reports from the inside. We've already stretched back into the sanctuary. So they've been all the way through the church from the alpha side. And now they're saying, well, we're going to start pulling ceiling. Well, you know, based on the conditions from the exterior, and there was a lot of things that, you know, happened at that event. It's a good, I think it's a good case study to look at, but, um, you know, you could say, okay, well, based on the amount of smoke that's coming out of these attic turbines, what's going on? Well, you've got a fire that's ripping through the a, a lightweight truss void. So where's the two places you don't want to be, you know, in that situation? You don't want to be on the roof and you don't want to be under it. And, you know, right. sure enough, you know, there was crews on the roof starting to open it up and there were crews inside and the roof just came, you know, they had a catastrophic roof failure. And so it was, you know, so we try to do stuff. So, so when you could, do, when you can do things like that, you start to build, you know, we're, we're building, um, you know, we're, the slide tray. Are, we're showing them patterns that they can, can, can recognize. Right. You know, now the, we used to use the analogy that, you know, every time you would, do these simulations or we would study a case study or we do a tailboard review of an event that, you know, out on the fire ground that you were adding slides into a carousel. But of course, nowadays, most of the people haven't seen a carousel <laughs> in a it's classroom. Such, it's in, it's in such a, a good metaphor decades. though. <laughs> so now it's kind of like, it's another, you know, it's another file in the hard drive there. Right. But the, Larger the experience base you build up, so the the idea behind the recognition prime decision making was that when you get to an event, it triggers, you know, you recognize certain aspects of it that are similar to something that you did prior. So it makes making that determination of what is, you know, what's what's the correct actions to take so much easier because you've, so that was, that's kind of the recognition part of that. You know, once you recognize what's going on, you look at the, you know, so that's goes kind of goes back to the critical fire ground factors. You look at based on what you're looking at, you see a pattern there, that pattern tells you, you know, kind of gives you a good idea of what's going on. And then what's, and it also helps you project 
you know, what's likely to, you know, happen in the next 10, you know, five or 10 minutes too. And then you can, you know, make your tactical decisions based on that. So Klein's initial research was he always thought that people would compare options, but since you, you know, his original research was with the Cleveland fire department. And so his original kind of hypothesis was that, well, they'll pick between two things because you can't pick between a bunch of stuff because you're in such a time limited, um, you know, working on the fire ground, you just, the, the time constraints are so tight that you can't, you know, look through every single option. And what he found is that people didn't look at any options. They just, they selected the first thing they thought was going to work, which they kind of called satisficing. You're not picking the best option. You're picking the first thing that you you think is going to work. And a lot of that's done through mental simulation. I remember a a conversation that he related in that book, Sources of Power, where he was just getting started with uh, interviews. And one of the incident commanders that he interviewed, he asked him about how he made decisions. And his response startled him because he said, I don't make decisions. Right. And, and that's so, what they said. Well, we don't make decisions. Yeah. We just do what we do. Is that what you and, meant when you said you can't really train somebody to make better decisions on the fire ground? You well, have you to can, preload them I, with what cues. What I'm trying to say is that like, there's no, there's like no, so the things that get people to make better decisions is what we're talking about. Well, we'll expand their experience base. So, and we'll help them figure out patterns will help them to develop richer mental models. So like things are like, that was one of my reasons for getting involved in the ISFSI's principles of modern fire attack was that we were teaching, we were helping people develop better mental models about fire dynamics. And so, you know, we, some of the people that the subject matter experts for that class were people like Dan Madrakowski uh, and Steve Kerber from the UL Firefighter Safety um, Institute. So, you know, we, we were the more, the better you understand, or the more, the richer your mental models are. So, and those can be things like fire dynamics. You know, the whole idea of flow paths. A lot of people didn't had never heard that before. Um, the, you know, trying to limit ventilation. A lot of people grew up in a world. I mean, I I know I did when I was first coming up in Albuquerque. The the chiefs of ours, oh, take the glass. Glass is cheap. Well, they were coming from a different era where the the fuels weren't plastic based, and glass was cheap. It was single pane glass. You know, nowadays, you know, if you just replace the windows in your house, you know, glass ain't cheap anymore. And and the fuels react differently today. So people have to understand all of that. The the um, you know how the fire dynamics have have changed, and so that type of tweaking people's mental models so that they actually understand, you know, that some of the things that we did in the past don't apply anymore. The fuels have changed. Things the fire environments changed. You know, and so um, the the and then, uh, and that goes along too with building construction. 
You know, you have to, un, you know, so that's a model that people, but those are things you can teach in context with simulations. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes, you know, building construction can be a little dry. If the building's on fire, people all of a sudden have a real interest in how it was put together. <laughs> and so, you know, that becomes, so it becomes easier to, 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 you know, get people spark interest in mm. some of these things. The, uh, just, Going back to the decision-making process again real quickly, the it's like there's no, um, I think RPD says that there's no decision-making model that I can teach you so that you can show up on scene and make a better decision. The decision is the end product of having a rich experience bank, whether it be simulation or whether it be actual incidents. It's cue recognition. Those cues come together to form patterns. And then when you see enough of that, you, it's an unconscious process. That decision-making process is an unconscious process where you're matching that slide or that file on the hard drive with a similar event that you've experienced in training or, or, uh, experience uh, on an actual incident. That, exactly. Yeah. So, and that's what I was saying. Why you can't, you can't just teach decision-making. You've got to kind of put it in the context of how are we going to, you know, expand experience base, how we're going to, you know, strengthen people's mental models and, um, you know, in their, in, in their mindset too, is like to be curious and to, um, you know, so in the beginning, it's important to keep things fairly simple, but you can do a lot of really advanced stuff with simulations once people have gotten to a certain point, because then you can work on other issues. Like one of the, big problems that um, you often see is that on, in the real fire grounds, that sometimes the incident commander gets fixated on one part of the operation and isn't stopping and taking a, a look at the big picture. And so in simulations, you can create events that, um, so, you know, and this is one you see a lot in tests, but you I, I think simulations are better used for training, but um, you can like change the conditions very subtly that'll develop over time, just like they do in the fire ground. Like all this, you know, now there's a little bit of smoke coming from the roof. Now we, you see a little bit more, maybe some flames coming through. If the person's fixated on a certain part of the operation and not, you know, taking a deep breath and just, you know, being able to stand back and kind of separate themselves from the event and look at the big picture. Um, you know, things can, you can take things, you know, so the person who's not paying attention then kind of gets blindsided by it. And not that we're trying to trick or trap people with simulations, but we can teach them a valuable lesson there is that, you know, I need to, you know, you can't just, you know, focus on one part of what's going on. You've, if you're if you're in charge, you've got to look at the big picture. And so, you know, you can do stuff like that. And, um, you know, and I, I mean, I think we've all been there on the fire ground where, you know, people get, you know, even at the company officer level, um, you know, people or they buy or they don't want to change. You know, one of the things that, I think I like about the 
in the blue card system is that there's a real emphasis on the in in the in, in it's and it's something that you know is really important is that the battalion chief is responsible or the you know the or the you know the strategic IC is responsible for managing the strategy and being able to to go from offensive to defensive that seems to be one of the hardest things for people to learn is it hey when you you know when do we pull a plug on this thing um and so you know that's a that's a you know a place where you can build simulations where the interior reports you know and so you know you can have crews on the inside saying hey we're pulling sailing we're hitting you know the fire in the void space we need another line to me that's always a clue that it's time to get it's time to get out but you know or someone says hey we're in zero visibility conditions that, that's automatic that's a red flag pull every, you know so you you can do those things and that's what's great about simulation you can do it in a place if you're doing that stuff on the fire ground you know you know we talked about you know the learning through experience there and you know one of my favorite quotes from uh, Benjamin Franklin is it experience keeps the dear school and fools will learn and no other. Well, you don't want to learn, you know, that you waited too long to, to switch to a defensive strategy on the fire ground. You want to do it in the sim lab. Get some, get some practice doing it in simulation where you've gone through the motions. It's not foreign idea to you. You know what it feels like and you're more comfortable doing it when it comes time to do it. You can match that slide up. I've seen this situation before cruise inside zero visibility this doesn't end well yeah i mean just go i mean you know the sofa superstore fire the anniversary of that's coming up shortly here you can't there's no you can't operate in zero visibility conditions it's just not possible yeah and so that's a defensive operation let Um, me let me switch gears or 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 ask a specific question we've talked about simulations being a very useful tool that you've experienced success with. Um, What about fidelity? How important is it in your experience that simulations represent and look very realistic to the type of fire or smoke conditions you would see in an event? You know, you talked about starting out with very primitive tools, you know, back in, I mean, we, (laughs) you know, I, I don't. I never saved any of that stuff. Bobby was the person who he archived everything. It's you know, he's, he. I did a podcast with him last year, and he, in his den, he had everything we ever did. And I was like, <laughs> Bobby, I can't, you know. But he had it all. But if we were looking at some of the early stuff we did, and I mean, it was not high fidelity, but, um, but why? But but you know. Why is the particularly the smoke and fire conditions and how they change over time in a building? So why is that important? Because it goes back to exactly what we were just talking about is um, we're trying to strengthen people's mental models. And so you can't create, you know, I've seen simulations. They look like a whack-a-mole game. You know, they you put the fire out over here and now it's, you know, two stories over this way. Just it, all you, you're just teaching people's. You're putting things in people's heads that that aren't. You know, you 
you're giving them bad mental models instead of strengthening the ones that they do have. And so the, that kind of fidelity, fidelity, how, you know, realistic the fire behaves is, is really important. Um, so it's just, you know, it's, it, so it goes back to, you know, the, you know, the whole idea of, the, of mental models and the cues and stuff. So you, you want things to look as, as realistic as, as it can be, which the nice thing today is that the software programs have so many different effects and editing tools that I've never had a situation that I couldn't recreate uh, in a simulation. Sometimes it takes a little bit of thinking and a, and a lot of editing to get exactly what you want, but there's certainly, um, the tools are good enough. The tools are way better today. Yeah. You know, you can take better pictures and, um, you know, and as things progress yesterday, I was watching the, uh, Apple's worldwide developer conference. They were unveiling their new, uh, all augmented and virtual reality headsets. And I was just, um, I'll, I'll be signing up to get one of the first pairs of those. I'd really like to, I think that's when, when that technology gets down and becomes, you know, and I think it'll, it won't take long to, become more cost effective. I think 3,500 bucks is a little steep for, but you know, the things that you could do with that, you know, and and most of that stuff is, would really be good for individual training, like with battalion chiefs where you could have a really immersive environment. Um, But, you know, you know, it's funny because at Albuquerque fire, we have a very sophisticated um, sim lab. And when I was at, Sandia National Labs, we just had a bunch of iPads in a Pelican case. And I didn't see any difference in how well the the training translated over onto the emergency scene. You know, even though we were just using portable radios and and iPads versus a a pretty robust sim lab. in the training division at Albuquerque. It sounds to me like you're saying that um, from our discussion so far, repetition is critical to build the experience base of cue recognition and that fidelity is less important, but realism is very important. Would you agree with that? I mean, the fidelity, when you look at it, I mean, there's different levels of fidelity. How well does the simulation kind of recreate what, the tasks that people are doing on the fire ground. Well, um, you know, the real skill that we're working with obviously is, you know, the, you know, fire ground communications. And so, you know, if you want, you know, and that's where a lot of people, it was kind of interesting when uh, Chief Brunacini first put their command training center together in Phoenix. Um, they, you know, tried to make it almost too realistic where they had a little treadmill and people would be in gear and talking to be on air on the radios and stuff. And they realized real quickly that 
that's probably not the place to be doing that. It would be, you know, be better off kind of everyone just on the radios and let's work on the communications part of it. If you want to be doing the other stuff, you know, the, if you want to pull hose lines and, and do multi-company drills, the place to do that's on the drill ground. So the, the skills that we were trying to teach, you know, we're, you know, where we're doing, you know, managing the fire ground and the, the communications and making better decisions and, and kind of keeping a group, uh, situational awareness. That's the stuff that we could do in the sim lab. And so there's a place for that. And there's a place to do the other stuff too. Yeah. Um, the point that I was trying to make was that, um, I, I used the word realism, and what I meant to say was accuracy. I think the the person who's developing a simulation has a lot of responsibility, as you said, to make sure you're not putting things in someone's head that does not reflect reality, what they're going to see. Whether or not the fire or the smoke or the conditions look, you know, super high fidelity is less important than that they are responding and behaving in an accurate representation of what you can yeah, expect to see. True. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, like I said, the software today is so good that, you yeah. know, it's, you can kind of do both, which is nice. Um, now the, you know, as far as the frequency of the, of the training. So that's something that's always, you know, it, we know, from the research that, you know, the smaller chunks spread out over time is better than like doing and, and this was my, always my complaint about company officer certification classes. Like we throw people in a classroom for two weeks and they just bombard them with, you know, and a lot of it is with, you know, uh, just facts and, you know, try to fill their head up and someone from HR comes in and, you know, it's someone from the dispatch center comes in and talks to him and just, it's a, it's a checklist. After two weeks, yeah, you don't remember any right. of it. And so, you know, it's always better to, it's better to do, you know, do smaller chunks and spread it out over time. Mix up what you're doing too. Don't, you know, you know, mix in an apartment and a house fire and here's a commercial job and here's, you know, a place of assembly. Um, That's the better way to do it, but it's also the more difficult way to do it. You know, it is. Yeah. Now, so there, you know, there's a couple of like our original thought in Albuquerque was that every quarter we would rotate all the company officers in through the, the command training center. And it, it just didn't work out in, in the real world is that there were so many things that it would occur. There was like the paramedic refreshers went long. We needed more makeup days and it, it was just different things that occurred all the time. And, and, and so another way to do that, and this is something we're just, I'm working with. I just trained some, a couple of uh, new people from the training division uh, in building simulations and we're going to do kind of a quarterly thing, but it's going to be taken out to the field. So it'll be a, a kind of a, a battalion based 
program. So we're, we're going to develop the material, train the battalion chiefs, and then each quarter they'll receive a new simulation, a new instructor guide, and then that'll be their training for that quarter. So during that quarter, the, which is plenty of time to get to all of their company officers and, and run the simulation. Now, I'm not sure four times a year is the ideal number. I don't um, – that would be a good research project for someone who's interested in a master's thesis somewhere. Um, uh, but I think that it's definitely – you know, I, th- I think it's a step in the right direction. We just weren't able to get everybody up into the – you know, up into the sim lab. So it's mostly, you know, being used these days to do, you know, kind of the initial certifications. And, um, you know, we do, and if there's some kind of special thing we want to run people through, but it doesn't, you know, f- for all the work we did on it, it's not getting utilized as as much as we would have hoped. Um, and, but I think that, you know, the, the, the idea of, you know, just, putting together some fairly simple stuff on iPads and sending that out to, to the field is, you know, I think that's going to be really the, the answer to the, to that particular problem anyways. Yeah. Simple. Sometimes you can incorporate it into stuff. Like I'm, I've done some stuff now where, where we take the simulation and, um, I'm just turning it into a video. So then um, I've done about a dozen of them so far. So they're kind of self-playing things where, um, so that's something that you can put on, like a lot of departments are using vector solutions now. So we can put those on vector solutions and then people can, you know, get on there and then practice you know, most of the time it's, you know, people get interested in practicing when a promotional exam is coming up or a certification lab's coming up. But, um, but that's a way that people can, you know, and so you basically create the simulation in a way that um, it's easy. So we just, I would, I've just been using a a program uh, Camtasia studio to screen capture the simulation, save it as an MP4 file. So any computer can play it or any iPad or iPhone or, Android device, and you just do them in a way that someone you know they get to a certain point in it, and you say pause the pause the video and give your size up report. A few steps later, it's pause the video and give your you know follow up report. As other units report on scene, we tell them pause the video and you know uh, and assign ladder one or assign engine two. And then when the battalion chief arrives, we say, okay, do a command transfer. What would that sound like? What would your CAN report, you know, configure a CAN report based on the conditions that you're in right now? And so um, so that's a way that people, you know, if they want to, they can they can get better by practicing on their own, too. That's, a- that's really one of the, the key things, you, you know, you want to do with the uh, – you know, and I think if we've got time, we can talk a little bit about deliberate practice and kind of how that fits into this. Yeah, let's let's move to deliberate practice. But I want to I want to ask you a question about that um, format that you mentioned there. It's very convenient 
and it's it is uh, makes it so that somebody can practice on their own and conceivably do more repetitions. Um, but do you have any concerns about um, or see the challenge of doing that in isolation? If if you've got bad habits that need correction and you're sitting in front of a computer working by yourself on a on a on a sim but you're doing the same thing wrong and you don't know you're doing it wrong how do you what are your thoughts about that kind of challenge well that is a challenge so one of the things that i put together with that is each one has kind of an instructor guide which so their company officer could work with them or it also has suggested responses. So here's what a size up would, you know, here's what ideally a size up might constitute. And we just go through those. And so it gives them a place where they can go back and kind of check themselves. But usually by the time people are, get, you know, doing, you know, they've been through the initial training, hopefully, and they're, you know, they're picking this stuff up, but a lot of times we just encourage people, you know, have your company officer sit with you and, and, and give you feedback on how, on how you're doing. But I think that is a concern. Like if people have bad habits, they're going to, if they practice doing those, it doesn't, doesn't do much to, to, to improve the situation. Yeah. You really need integrity in the organization where you've got battalion chiefs working with their company officers and deputies working with their battalion chiefs. So everybody's on the same sheet of music. See, and that's kind of our, our idea behind this kind of battalion level training is that the BCs will have to come into the training division and go through the sim with the, you know, the folks from training. And plus we usually, you know, we always get good feedback too on, you know, Hey, we need to tweak a few things before this goes out. I mean, that's one of the kind of, I never finalize anything until after you know, we've, we've run some experienced people through it and they say, you know, that doesn't seem right to me. We need to, you know, and there's always, I mean, I've never had a, I've never built a simulation that ran perfectly the first time through anyways. It's all, you know, there's always stuff that needs to be tweaked. Everything's that way. (laughs) But, um, let's jump to deliberate practice. I think that's exactly right though. You know, everyone has to be on the same page. It can't be, Hey, this is how we do it on, Battalion one and then battalion three is doing it totally different. Right. But that's what's nice about, you know, having a system so everyone knows what it is. And then, you know, and that's really, you know, one of the things that people forget about in these simulations is that we don't create any of them in a vacuum. There has to be an instructor guide that says, okay, this is, you know, these are the learning objectives. Here's the key decision spots in this simulation. This is how it's going to unfold, you know, and then, you know, suggested responses and stuff. You've got to put the time into the instructor guide to, so that, you know, because you never, you know, I've been, I've been out of Albuquerque fire 20 years now. And so, you know, if there was no instructor guides, people trying to figure out what it was I was trying to build 20 years ago, it just would be lost today. Right. Yeah. Let's, let's jump to deliberate practice. What, so, can you talk a little bit about what deliberate practice is and why it's uh, such an important concept? So, deliberate practice comes out of the work of uh, Anders Ericsson. Um, he has a really good uh, book. It's uh, called Peak, and 
Let me see. I think I have the. I know I have some information about it here somewhere. But um, so his idea. Oh, here it is. Um, yeah. So his book is called Peak. It's Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. And so it, it kind of dovetails with a lot of what. Um, what Gary Klein was, you know, talking about here is that, you know, so a lot of what Erickson's talking about is, well, how do you become an expert? So how do you get that expertise so that, you know, you have that huge experience base? And so his research started with, um, it's quite a while ago now, but, um, he started looking at music school students in Germany. He was, he was in Germany at the time, doing some research for, I think it's for his PhD program. And um, so we wanted to see why you have all these talented musicians come to these, you know, music academies and then everyone's has tons of talent. So everyone has is equally talented. There's, you know, and so he said, well, what separates the people that are going to be, you know, um, concert musicians versus people that are going to end up being middle school music teachers. So why does someone, why do some of these people excel where others, you know, get to a certain point and they don't, they don't reach that level of expertise. And so what he found was it was how they, the amount of practice it, but and more importantly, how they practiced. And so he kind of, coined the term deliberate practice. And so deliberate practice was, you know, you practice with well-defined goals in mind. What is it that you're trying to get better at? And then that involves, um, you know, where where you're practicing the things that you're weak at. Or you practice, you know, you're pra- you, you're focusing your practice on the things that you need to practice on, and but part of that is is getting um, expert feedback too, and so you know, in the music school, people would only have lessons with their instructors only, you know, maybe once a week or something, and then they would, you know, the the idea was that they would have to practice on their own. And the people that learned, who kind of picked up this deliberate practice kind of technique were the people that excelled. And so it was the amount of practice, but it was how focused it was on the things that they needed to do. And so, and and as Anderson did, or Erickson did more research, he began to find that in other areas too. So when he started looking at, particularly like when you look at sports, like things like gymnastics or figure skating or diving and things where um, there was clearly, you know, there was a set of, um, I guess, ideals that you were trying to get to. Like if you were a gymnast, you were trying to get a perfect 10 in some routine. So, you know, and those people obviously receive, you know, if you're an Olympic type athlete, you're getting pretty good coaching and feedback, hopefully. And, uh, but 
could you take those concepts and then use them in areas where it's not as well defined? I mean, running the fire ground is, is not, there's not a set of standards like there are for figure skating or whatever, you know, you know, we're not holding up cards at the end of a fire and saying, Oh, that's a, you know, 8.5 or something. But could you take those same concepts where people were getting, you know, we're working on the things that they needed to work on. And so that's, so we, so that was kind of what we started to do with the simulations. I think a good example of that is the size up stuff. And we didn't, I don't even think we realized we were doing it at the time until then we started reading this stuff and we're like, yeah, that makes sense. And then we started incorporating it into, into everything. Um, the, the, the hard part though, is the feedback part is the, is the tricky part, I think in, in all of this, so that you get people to focus on the things they need to focus on. And I, I know in my classes, I spend a lot of time on feedback because, you know, if if, a, if you have a bad outcome on the fire ground, I mean, that's pretty good feed. That's, you know, outcome feedback, right? You know, that things didn't go well, but why didn't it go well? I mean, so what's the process part of that? And that's a little trickier to, you know, you have to have someone who can actually go through that and say, okay, here's where things went south. You know, here's things that you need to work on. Um, but then giving them the opportunity to do that. And that's where I think, you know, where you talked about the repetition, but it's not just rep, you know, it's just not rote repetition. It's got to be, you know, you know, you're working on the things that you need to work on. I know that in, like in the blue card program, but when people are the, at the company officer level, people have a difficult time doing the, um, the system as far as, um, assigning other units because we have a very there's a very standardized way to do that by task location and objective and for people that haven't done that I mean, it was a huge issue in albuquerque because people had to unlearn the system that they were kind of doing in order to do that and so then that became something that you know we could do deliberate practice on give people feedback hey that you know that was okay but here's something you need to work on and then jump right back in and do it again. And so, but you know, you have to have good instructors to do that, you know, and that's one of the places where simulation programs can, you know, run into issues too. I know in the very beginning when we were doing this stuff, the, the chief at the time um, wanted to have a battalion chief come up and, be kind of part of the training. And it was before the battalions had been through the training either. And so they would come in and just like give off the wall, you know, they would, they would give them feedback that was contradicting what we were trying to teach people. And so, you know, it goes back to what you were saying about everyone being on the same page. Um, so then we realized we got to train these guys first. They can't be up here, you know, in the pro work in the program if they don't even know how it, you know, if they're not competent in themselves. Yeah. But, you know, so the, the main things about the deliberate practice is, you know, having really defined, well-defined goals. Um, you know, your training is focused on the things that you need to work on. Um, you know, and it means getting out of your comfort zone too. You know, pe- people like to do the stuff that they're good at, right? right? That's what no I want. No one wants to be, 
no one wants to get out of their comfort yeah. zone. And so that's, you know, if you're not, that, if you're not uncomfortable, you're not working in deliberate practice. Exactly. Yeah. You yeah. have to be, I mean, you know, I, I know I've seen a lot of examples from my own personal life now. And this during the pandemic, I really, something I always wanted to do was learn how to paint with watercolors and it's just, you have to be willing to make a lot of crappy paintings and be out of your comfort zone before you start to get a feel for what, you know, what, what good art actually looks like. Well, how you did you create how did, a lot of bad art? How, how did you do Did you get out of your comfort zone? I'm almost every session. So <laughs> and I got good feedback from good teachers who, uh-huh. But that's part of the, I mean, that's, that's the million dollar question. I mean, that's what kind of, we got into that little discussion of uh, Klein's shadow box training there that, you know, how do you find, you know, expert, how do you get expert feedback if you can't convene a bunch of experts, you know? And so, and that's one of the, that's one of the, the real issues in a, in a, you know, trying to put together a good simulation program is, you know, who are the people that are going to give feedback on and kind of point people in the right direction as to, you know, as to where, where they need to work. And then, you know, and the other issues, you know, how do you keep people motivated to keep getting better too? You know, a lot of times we get good at doing something and it's like, I'm good at this. I don't need to keep working at it. I don't need to get better. I'm doing all right. Mm. Um, you introduced me to a term that I hadn't heard before, and that was perfect practice. How does that, how does that, uh, relate to deliberate practice and what is it and how does it relate to deliberate practice? Well, so, you know, perfect practice is a a term I got from actually my wife's, uh, she's retired now, but she spent 40 years teaching in public schools. And, um, I learned it from her, but, and so the, the idea is that, you know, a lot of times we teach students uh, whatever whatever it is that we're trying to teach them until they get it right. They do it right once and it's like, okay, you're done. Well, the idea behind perfect practice is that once you've done it correctly, then that's the starting point for practice. And so, you know, it's like putting, you know, I see this and they teach them recruit when I was back in the day, teaching recruit classes or teaching EMTB classes is that, you know, we'd run them through, a, you know, how to do something, whether it's putting a sling and something as simple as a sling and swat or, or, you know, putting on their SCBA and to meet the whatever, 45 second standard. And we'd get everyone to do it. And once they did it once at that standard, well, okay, we're done. We're going to move on to the next skill. Well, you know, that was, that should have been our starting point. Okay. Now that you know what it feels like to do it right, let's do it a bunch more. And so that was kind of the idea behind perfect practice is that that's the starting point for doing it. Now you got, now you've, you've got the concept. It's like, it's like giving your, your size up report. Okay. You did it. You know, we would, you know, do it and say, okay, that was a good one. And then you're done. Well, I learned right away is that you've got to keep 
doing it right a bunch of times and then going back and reinforcing that too. So that was kind of the, the, you know, the main point anyways of that, that, perfect practice is that, you know, practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent. And so, you know, perfect practice makes perfect. If you do it right and you practice doing it right, you know, it kind of goes back to that old fire department saying is that, you know, you want to do something, you, you don't want to do something until you do it right. You want to do it until you can't do it wrong. And for a lot of the skills that we learn, like there's a lot of skills that, it, it, you know, it just doesn't matter. But there's certain things that, that you need to know in that, you know, could someday save your life. And so those are the things you better, you know, practice perfect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and some of that's, you know, like one of the things we talked about earlier, when you pull a plug on an operation, you better know how to do that and not have to, you know, just, you don't have to look at a job aid to do that. You better be able to, you know, pull that out and do it kind of on autopilot. And so, you know, so there's things like that that really, I think, you know, require that level of practice. How do we, how do we, how do we make that change in a department to? That's a good question. You know, a lot of these things, you know, it's easier said than done. Yeah. Because they require, you know, the pro- I think, you know, it kind of goes back to the whole idea of the simulation program, right? Is that, you know, what happens in a simulation program? Well, the, the chief attends FDIC and he sees the software that's out there. It's like, oh, that's great. And then buys the software package and then comes back and dumps it in the lap of the person who has the least amount of time to work on the stuff, like some poor training officer who's already overtaxed and doing, you know, has way too many, you know, irons in the fire already. And so, you know, so part of it's, you know, putting more time and more instructors into the the training aspect. And some of that may be just, you know, incorporating people from the field. I mean, there's a lot of ways to do stuff. Um, and I, I liked, you know, the concept I like is having a really fluid kind of training division where people can come up out of the field, spend, a, you know, a month or six weeks and then go back out. No, you know, a lot of people are afraid to get trapped in training. It's like, oh, if I go in there, I'm never going to come out. In some departments, that's their policy. You know, you go in there and you never come out. Well, you know, it's like a casino. Your money goes in, but it never comes back out. Um, you know, so it's, you know, so a lot of it's, you know, kind of how you configure stuff. I mean, that's why we're looking more at this battalion training. You know, and there's, you know, some of it's, you know, searching out grants or working with other departments. Like for smaller departments, you know, where you're doing a lot of mutual aid, if you can kind of combine forces and and or combine resources and, and kind of get stuff done that way, I've seen that be successful. And then for a lot of departments, I mean, the, the weird thing about simulations is that it's a weird skill set, right? So that you got to be, have some technical skills. You got to be computer literate. You got to be a halfway decent photographer. You got to have some background in instructional design so you can actually, excuse me, design the stuff. But you've got to understand fire dynamics and fire behavior. 
building construction, how fire, you know, moves inside of a building. And then you've got to really be familiar with, you know, your department's, you know, what are the resources that you bring to a department? You have to really have a good grasp of your department's, you know, incident management system, your fire ground management system. And that's a weird skill set that, you know, it's better to have multiple people doing that stuff. Like a lot of departments, everyone has a, some guy on the job who or some gal who does wedding photography or whatever, you know, that is real or someone who's just an amateur photographer who's really good at it. Well, that's a good person to tap into, um, you know, and then bring in experienced battalion chiefs or people who really understand the fire ground to help design the thing. You know, you can have one of these young kids that are really, I just trained a couple of young kids that don't have a ton of experience, but they're really good. Um, uh, to have good technical skills, particularly people, anyone who's been involved in doing like a lot of the kids that are into this nowadays is the video editing stuff. You know, they do their own videos and, you know, and so anyone who's, you know, good with Adobe Premiere or, you know, uh, Apple Final Cut or any of the, the video editing programs pick up the simulations because it's all, you know, it's all, it's all kind of video based anyways. And those people pick that stuff up quickly, you know, as compared to just trying to look, pick, you know, it's, it's harder to take someone who has really good fireground skills and teach them the technical stuff. It's easier to, you know, have those people come in and tell the, someone who's really good at video editing, this is what I want it to look like, you know, and have them, you know, be the kind of more like an, a, a subject matter expert. And so that seems to, you know, bringing a group of people together kind of works pretty well. I like your idea of uh, battalion level training, though, because I think it's important when you've got ownership at the battalion level for for the training content. You know, they got. I think you get buy in when they have a larger piece of responsibility of delivery of training, and it's not just looking at that overtaxed training officer with too many irons in the fire. And the nice thing about it, too, is that the company officers get to interact with their with their boss Mm. and he can tell them what's their, you know, his expectation of what he wants to see on the fire ground. If this if we go to this kind of thing, this is, you know, my expectation of you. This is the things I want to see, you know, getting done. And one of the one of the fires I can remember. Back when I was a, the operations deputy, is we had a, a arson fire in a super Walmart, and the first due company was just a couple of blocks away, and you know they did what they do at house fires. They went in, they pulled a pre-connect, they pulled up in front, pulled a pre-connect off a, a tank water, stretched in where you know, a hundred feet short of where the fire actually was. The person set a fire in the bedding area, which was kind of overwhelming the sprinkler system already. And, you know, so anyways, it was kind of, the front end was a little bit of a cluster. And then, but, you know, we just sat down afterwards and we, you know, we did a good tailboard review and said, you know, with his battalion chief and with myself and, um, you know, we just talked about it afterwards. And then we said, you know, 
one of the things you can do in those kind of that's a great place to expand your experience base. We just we, no one beat this guy up. He was a smart kid too, and he turned out to be. He ended up being a, a an excellent battalion chief later on in his career. And um, you know, we just said, you know, if we had to to if we had to do this all over again, you know, you know, how would how would you handle it? He said, you know what, chief, I I would uh, secured a, a five inch line and pumped to the sprinkler system. And that's all we wanted to hear. No one beat him up and called him, you know, burn him down, Bob, or whatever. You know, it's just, you know, he learned that lesson. He never made that mistake again. And, you know, that's kind of where you want to get. Now, could you do that same thing? So we turned that into a simulation just to run everyone else through it. This guy learned the lesson. But how do we spread that among the rest to everybody else? And so, you know, we made the super – that was one of the very first – Big, you know, big box things that we ever did was we made a super Walmart. And so, yeah, I'm reminded way to I'm reminded that your story reminds me of a quote, something like a smart man learns from his mistakes, but a wise man learns from someone else's, <laughs> you know, and, and that's another, you know, and, that, and that's a place where, you know, one of the other things that that I did over and I'm still I'm still doing today is. Um, looking at critical incidents and then building um, a presentation on them. And so I've done a bunch of them for some of the, you know, big fires that have occurred over time and, um, and just in, in some other kind of lesser known incidents too, but kind of changing them. Like the, we used to just like send everyone PDFs of the NIOSH reports you don't know if someone's going to read them or not, or if it's really going to make any difference in how they look at stuff. And so what I found is that if you turn those kind of events into a story, people relate to that better. And so I would, you know, because the NIOSH reports were like, well, Firefighter 1 and Firefighter 2, I would just go in, you know, We'd call the department and or pull up the local news reports, find out what everybody's name is, get some background about them, talk, you know, and we would create a story about the about what happened at that event. And and people just I don't know, that became a very popular kind of part of the of of the training. And it's a good way to expand your experience base. If people look at what's happened to other people and and would always, you know, start off with, you know, you don't, don't be hypercritical of what's going on here. Put yourself in the position of these people and see why it made, why what they're doing makes sense to them at the time. What were they thinking? You know, what, why did, even though, you know, you might do it differently now, you know, you want to think about, you know, how it is, you know, you know, what, what was their mindset? Why would, why would they do something that, you, you know, obviously, you know, we're looking at it, it, it from hindsight, which is 2020. It's like, well, if these people knew that in the next 10 minutes they were going to die, they wouldn't be doing the things that they're doing. So why did it make sense at the time? And so, you know, that's another place where, you know, outside of simulations that you can expand pe people's experience base. And I've built a good number of those, and I'm always, you know, I'm always happy to share those with people. I try to incorporate, 
you know, scenes from the incidents, the facts as they were kind of laid out in the NIOSH reports, but include radio, you know, actual radio traffic from the incidents and stuff. And so people can kind of get a, a feel for, you know, what actually happened at the event and, you know, learn the learn those lessons. We'll include your email in the show notes so that people that okay. listen can uh, send you an email and make make that request if they're interested. I'm re- I'm reminded of um, something you mentioned, I think, in your ISFSI course on simulations, where you discussed or or talked about a learner centered approach, learner centered approach. What does that mean to you? Um. So it really means making the learning active. So you you know this, the students need to be interacting with the material. I mean, and, and I'll be honest with you, I was not I was not a great instructor when I started out. I was kind of like everyone else, like we'll give them all the information, you know, but we'll fill their heads up with all of the, you know, the information. You know, not not even the procedural stuff. It's just you know the kind of the knowledge based stuff with that. You know, we thought they needed to know that they needed to be able to, you know, recite back in in, in a test. And you know, I over time I learned that you know you have to. It ha- the, the, what we're teaching people has to be stuff that they can. As soon as they're looking at it, they they know that they can use this out in the real world. And but yeah, but it has to be interactive. It can't be. It's not a you know you know, a whole stream of, of facts being dumped onto people. It's, you know, so you, you know, and you want people thinking about it as they're going along, you're trying to, you know, think about, okay, how does this apply to me? How could I use this out in the real world? Try to figure it out as they're going along. We're not just spoon feeding them information. I mean, there's a, I mean, there's a certain amount of procedural stuff you have to teach people. It's like you know how to run the pump panel and stuff like that. But you know, the, but once we get kind of past that level, and we're trying to get them to to be, you know, thinking people on the fire ground. You know, they have to be able to interact with the the material. And you see, like a lot of instructors, they just. They're waiting for some. They're just waiting for someone to make a mistake so they can jump on them and say, "Oh, well, that's wrong." You know, it's like, it's, I, would, you know, my concept of that veered 180 degrees. That when people make mistakes, that's the opportunity where you can figure out, okay, why did they, why did they make that mistake? It's not beat them up because they did it. It's so you know, and that, and that goes back to kind of the simulation programs too. It's, it's gotta be a place where it's safe to make mistakes, you know, and, and that's where you got to separate out the training from the assessment part of it. We're here to train. We're here to get better. You know, I like to video this when we're doing stuff, but the, the caveat to that is everyone's aware that when we're done, this gets erased. There's no record of it. We're just, all this is, is the chance for us to go through it and give, you know, give more accurate feedback to you. Once the simulation's over, we erase it. And everyone's carrying a video camera with them nowadays with their phone. So it's not, you know, in the past it was like, oh, you got to set up VC, you know, you know, having the camcorders and everything else. But that's a great way to, to do stuff. But everyone needs to know, hey, 
when this is over, this stuff is goes back into the ether. So, um, so anyways, you know, one of the one of the people I worked with when I was at Sandia Labs was an old school instructor, and he just thought we, if you just throw every fact known to God onto a PowerPoint and go through it line by line, that people, that's how people learn. Well, you know, he never, you know, teaching and learning are two separate activities, unfortunately. And so we got evaluated there all the time. So we had monthly drills, we had annual exercises that they brought in outside people to you know, to evaluate the operation. And this guy would lose his mind if we got a bad evaluation. He'd be like, we taught them that. You know, he would just, he would, and he never, you know, well, if they didn't learn it, apparently we didn't teach it to him. And so, you know, he, you know, so you have to make, so giving people the opportunity to learn is kind of the, learning centered training it's you know people have to feel free to be able to ask questions and we can have a discussion and we don't have to cover all the material in this class you know some of it you're just going to have to if we don't get to it you're going to have to you know get some of it on your own too but um so everything has to be you know in my mind is about learner centered and then performance based what you know can they do the stuff better? Then they've then we know they've actually learned it if they can do if they can do it and they can you know do it accurately and correctly. So that's kind of you know it's not about the instructor; it's about the students and, and I like how they, how they can learn. I like the piece that you said. Um, it's kind of like a moment of a moment of truth. I think you said a moment of opportunity. If they've made a mistake, it's your chance to have some insight to why they made the mistake, which is your opportunity to actually have a positive influence. The instructor kind of has a decision point at that point. Do you want to lose the student or you want to do what you, what you're presumably there to do, which is to change behavior, to make sure that they can do the job, have the skill. It's a lot of responsibility. And then you have to find out, okay, why did they make that mistake? Maybe they have a bad mental model of how this works. So they have a, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're kind of, frame of references and doesn't match up to what we're trying to do. And another, I think a good thing for instructors to do is to be a good example. So one of the things that I like to do before we, you know, get too far into the, into the sim lab is like, we're going to have the instructors run through one of these. So you can see what, our expectation of your performance should be. And so we go in and just, we model what it is that we want them to do. And then they have a better frame of reference for it. It's like, Oh, that's what they're, you know, I like it, that. It, you see a lot of people that like kind of goes on over there, you know, when they, when they see us, when they see us do it. I got one so more, I, think, I got one more sure. question for you, Ted. Did you finish sure. that last thought? Yeah. Okay. Um, and do you have any advice for the newly promoted officer who has responsibility for training their personnel? So this could be a this could be a, an officer who's 
in the training division with a with um, department wide responsibility and training, but it might be a new company officer that is responsible for training their crew. What do you know today that you would like to share that you had maybe had to learn the hard way? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think if you're a company officer, one of your main responsibilities is to train the people, you know, that are working underneath you. And so, you know, I really had a, you know, a lot of opportunities when I, was in Albuquerque fire. And, you know, so from early on, when I was in recruit class, we went through EMT beach training and I stupidly scored a perfect score on the state licensing exam. So they were like, Oh, you must be some kind of medical genius. Instead of, I was good at taking multiple choice tests, but they were like, Oh, they sent me to, you know, CPR instructor class. And so I started learning, you know, so I kind of got, where I had to do that even when I wasn't a company officer. Um, but I think being a good example is probably the best thing, you know, I, I could say to people is that, you know, a company officer that complains about having to go to training is setting a bad example for their, for their folks. And even if it's something that, you know, you, you know, it may not be the greatest thing in the world that you got to go to. It's like, oh, we got to go to some HR thing or whatever. It's just like, hey, you know what? It's part of the job. Let's go. Let's get the most, you know, we can, let's get the most we can get out of it. And then if you make training a like a regular thing, so it's not a big surprise. Like when I was at Sandia Labs, every day, so on Monday through Friday, it was uh, Monday they did technical rescue training. Tuesday. Uh, they did EMS. Wednesday, we did command training. Thursday, they did hazmat. And then Friday, we gave them a, let them just do whatever they wanted to. And so once it became like a regular thing, everyone just accepted it. Oh, today's the day we're going to do that. So, you know, it depends on how your shifts are running. But if you're doing a 48, you know, just say, okay, on the first morning of the 48, we're going to do, you know, we're going to do some basic thing. And just kind of incorporate that and, and and just make it a regular part of your training. But and, and I'll be honest with you, you know, from my experience and 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 I've gone I mean, I've been I've trained in almost all fifty states. There's only six states I don't think I've been to. And what I find is that people gravitate to the company officers that do those kind of things, that do the training, that you know, run a tight ship and, you know, do and really perform well on the fire ground. People want to be on your crew if you're doing those things. And, you know, in the people that gravitate towards that are the high performers. So then you end up, and that's why you see that in departments all over the country. You get little pockets of excellence where you've got a, a really quality company officer and people want to be with that person. And so you you want to be that person, but to be that person, you've got to, you know, you you've you've got to do all those things. Um, you know, you'd be start training people, hold yourself to the to the highest standards, don't make excuses. You know, I always, you know, I don't know, I kind of had that mindset from the outset, but what I learned is that the best people want to work with you. And the best people make your job easier. You know, if, 
you've got really good people on your crew, life is easy. If you've got really good company officers in your battalion, your job as a battalion chief is way easier. You know, if you've got people that can show up on the fire ground, give a good size up report, assign their crew to something to to the the most important task that needs to be handled at that time, can assign the next couple of crews and they give you a good uh command transfer those people are worth their weight in gold and so yeah that's the company officer that you want to be right i think that's a great place to finish that's uh that's uh some excellent advice i think i want to thank you very much for the time that you spent here with me today and um sharing your experience and your knowledge it's been much appreciated and like i said i will put the uh the email, your email in the show notes. So you may get some contact okay. from our listeners. Yeah, but. I mean, I'm always, like I said, I'm always happy to, you know, the stuff I developed, it doesn't do anyone any good unless they're using it. And so I'm always happy to share information that, or, you know, programs I've put together with other instructors. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll put it out there and make sure that they know that that's available. Thank you, Ted. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, I enjoyed this today. As we wrap up, we'd love to hear from you. If you found value in today's episode, please take 10 seconds to leave us a five-star rating and review. It not only helps other fire instructors and training officers discover the show, but it also helps us to create better content for you. Simply scroll to the bottom in your favorite podcast app and hit rate and review. Your feedback means the world to us. Thank you for being a part of our community, and we'll catch you in the next episode.